Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good Monday morning. As we enter into this new week, we do so as people of prayer, and we do so as people who are concerned about the concerns of others. And so as we live into the calling to be as at least as concerned about others as we are about ourselves, I want to lift up one particular headline to you that um, surfaces Yet another issue that I feel fairly confident most of us have not considered. So two months ago, two months ago, the cruise industry globally shut down. Uh, There were lots of COVID-19 outbreaks on ships. You will remember that. Well, there are some 100,000 crew members on ships that were at sea two months ago when the cruise industry shut down. And those 100,000 crew members remain trapped at sea. They don't get any information about what is going to happen to them because no decisions have been yet made. So the crew members on board, no longer receiving paychecks, are waiting for news about when or if they will ever get to return home. Now, these are people who are serving um, on cruise ships globally. And so these are people from all over the world. At least two crew members have leapt overboard uh, to their own deaths in the last uh, couple of weeks. On May the 10th, a 39-year-old crew member from the Ukraine aboard the Royal Princess uh, ship um, docked in Rotterdam, Netherlands. Uh, And at the end of last month, a crew member uh, leapt from Royal Caribbean's Jewel of the Sea uh, while off the coast of Greece. Um, And so these ships, there are there are actually this the the Miami Herald is reporting on this because the Miami Herald sent um, sent reporters out to watch what has become this very strange uh, ritual now where these ships, because they can't just sit in port, right, because they don't, they don't have berths. So they are designed to be at sea. And so they just drive, apparently, back and forth from Miami to Cuba and northeast to the Bahamas, and they just make this circuit. And they're, they're, apparently you can sort of, like, watch it happen if you're close enough to see them in what just looks like a train of these ships going uh, making this little circuit. Well, as we enter into hurricane season, um, this is a, that's probably not going to be a workable uh, plan. So anyway, there's a group of people you can pray for today whose plight you probably had not yet considered. The other headline that I will lift up here in terms of praying the news at the start of this hour, let us be praying. Um, I have surfaced concern that once the COVID-19 began appearing in refugee camps, um, there would be no way to stop its spread. And we now have the first verified cases of uh, of COVID nineteen among the Rohingya um, in in Myanmar in Burma, um, and so let us be praying um, for people in circumstances who, circumstances that you and I already could not imagine, and now uh, living in fear of this pandemic with no way to social distance, no way to practice any sort of hand hygiene. 
um, without resources to any kind of medical care, on and on and on and on and on. So uh, let us be people whose hearts burn with compassion for the least of these around the world. First up in this hour, uh, Dr. John Lennox. He is uh, Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at Oxford. He's an author, a speaker, a writer. He is a scientist. And he and I are going to talk about where is God in a coronavirus world. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Professor John Lennox, he has a a very distinguished uh, resume. He's the Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at the University of Oxford. He's an Emeritus Fellow at Green Templeton College. He's also an adjunct lecturer at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. Uh, He has written a number of books. He has taken on a number of, uh, of atheists on the platform, public debates defending the Christian faith, uh, including Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Peter Singer. Um, and he's the author of a number of books, including Can Science Explain Everything? Today, we're going to talk about a very a very brief book that I would just describe as um, as essential if you want to be prepared for the conversation of the day, where is God in a coronavirus world? Uh, Professor Lennox, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you. Well, it's a joy to have you with us today. Um, maybe I'll start with this. Um, isn't atheism, isn't a disregard uh, of God altogether the easiest response to the question, you know, where is God in a coronavirus world? Well, <clears throat> it's superficially easy in the sense that it is a, a reaction, and it's an understandable reaction. But unfortunately, if we decide that there is no God because of what's going on, We certainly remove the problem, or we think we have. But one thing we haven't removed is the suffering and the pain. It's still there. The other thing that we have removed through atheism is any ultimate hope. There's absolutely no ultimate hope. Now, Richard Dawkins, when I discussed this with him, said, well, my view is grim, but that doesn't mean it's false. I said, your view is very grim, but that doesn't mean it's true. And what concerns me is that I want to know what the truth is. And if I follow atheism along, I discover not only is there no hope, but it doesn't in the end make much sense because, as Dawkins puts it, atheism actually removes the categories of good and evil. And it's very odd if you say, look, this is an evil in our world, this COVID-19 virus pandemic, if there's no such thing as evil. And we are moral beings. And I think that it's pretty obvious that if atheism is removing morality, then it parts company with any common sense and doesn't solve anything. And You know, people today are looking for hope, and I'm just glad to be on your program because I do believe there is hope because the Christian faith is true and atheism is not. Well, amen, which is where the book, um, and again, this is just a very 
it's a very brief book, but the way that I described it to my 16-year-old when I was reading it yesterday and she was saying, what are you reading? Um, and I said, well, I'm reading this book in preparation for a conversation tomorrow. And she asked me about it. And then after I told her um, what's in the book, she said, well, can I read it when you're done? And I said, yes, absolutely. So there you go. Um, what I, how, This is the way I described it to her. And tell me if you think this is an accurate description of this, uh, where is God in a coronavirus world? I said, Ellie, we talk about Christian worldview and we talk about apologetics and we talk about the way the Christian faith bears on everything. This book takes all of that and applies it to this one particular issue. So it, for people who are familiar with worldview conversations or Christian apologetics, what they are going to see here is all of those really good conversations um, just very directly applied to one issue, one concern. Is that the, is that, was that what you were hoping to achieve? Yes, it is indeed. When I saw this lockdown, and my wife and I are in lockdown, we're among the vulnerable oldies, I could see because I'm a mathematician that it would very rapidly circle the globe. And I thought I'll sit down and write. And I wrote for a week and then sent it to the publishers and they had it printed by the following Wednesday. So it was an amazingly short and you're absolutely right, very concentrated effort to imagine what would I say if I was chatting to somebody in a coffee shop. And that's the spirit in which I've written it. And I hope it's very accessible. And I'm glad to think that you thought it was. Oh, it's very accessible. It is, um, it's comprehensive and yet concise. Uh, it's just excellent. Let me just share with um, with our listeners again, the book, which is very brief. Where is God in a coronavirus world? John Lennox is the author. Um, Professor Lennox we could talk about pain. We could talk about vulnerability, morality. We could talk about evil. All of those were words that you just surfaced in the answer to the first question. Um, and so take any one of those threads and pull it. Well, I think one of the things that happens nowadays is that people see this. And depending on where they're coming from, if they're atheists, as we've seen, they say, well, this is evidence, there's no God. But the opposite extreme is to say, ah, God is judging the world for its evil. And I think we need to be very careful with that. Uh, the pantheists who are in between somewhere, they will say, well, people are suffering their karma, so there's no point in helping them because you'll only force them to go through an even worse time in a reincarnation. And that seems to me a cruel doctrine. But I would like to say something from the New Testament, because I believe Jesus himself has given us an answer to this judgment of God question. In Luke chapter 13, he's standing on top of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and somebody in the crowd says, Lord, this is the place where Pilate massacred a group of worshippers. And Jesus responded by saying, do you think they were worse than anybody else because this happened to them? I tell you, they were not. But then he moved on and he said, and the 18 people that the Tower of Siloam fell on top of and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than anybody else? I tell you, they were not. In other words, Jesus is telling us straight that when we see a, a tragedy um, that is what we call natural evil, like tsunamis or COVID-19 or a tower falling, something where human beings aren't directly responsible, at least uh, in the way it is now, 
we mustn't necessarily conclude that they are specially worse than anybody else. But then Jesus took the lesson from it that we need to listen to. And it's this. He says, I tell you, all of you, except you repent, you will likewise perish. Now, what did he mean by that? He didn't mean that we've got a choice between being killed while we're in church or a tower falling upon us. No, what he meant was that tragedies, whether small or great, and a pandemic is consists of thousands, hundreds of thousands by now, small tragedies, but they're real to the people involved. We mustn't look at those and say, ah, God is judging in this case. Because what I've noticed is that people who say that do not turn other people's minds to God. They actually encourage people to turn on them and say, who do you think you are telling us that you know God is judging people? Now, we need to be careful even there, because, of course, God can allow pain and suffering to engulf somebody because they have sinned. We read of that in the New Testament. But in general, the way to go is not to say this is God's judgment, but it is to say this is a wake-up call. C.S. Lewis once said, pain is God's megaphone. And the one thing the pandemic teaches all of us, well, whatever we believe, is that we are vulnerable. We're not in control. And it makes us think of death, of eternity, of God and our relationship to God. And I think that's the way to go when we're talking to people, that we, if we're Christian, of course, that we speak into a situation where people are asking the big God questions. Absolutely. People are asking the big God questions today. It's our opportunity to get God back into those conversations. Uh, people are feeling like they've not only lost control, they're feeling particularly vulnerable. They are recognizing uh, just how near life is to death at any given moment, um, even as close, right, as our next breath. All right, Dr. John Lennox and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. I am also going to ask him to graciously preview for us uh, a book that is coming out in June 2084. I hope it's a sneak peek into what he would say to his grandchildren. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation with Professor John Lennox. The book we're talking about today, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? Uh, very concise, very helpful. Um, Dr. Lennox, I'd love for you to share with us a little preview of your forthcoming book, 2084. Uh, not lost on me that um, Orwell's novel was released in June of 1949, and that book was 1984. Uh, any connection there? And will you give us a sneak peek? Absolutely. There's a very strong connection. Uh, Orwell's book was a futuristic dystopia, asking us to imagine what it would be like in 1984. And I'm asking the question, what is the world going to be like in 2084, particularly in connection with the rise of artificial intelligence, which has invaded all of our lives. Just think how many times a day we all ask a digital assistant for some help. And constantly we're being bombarded by requests, 
do buy this, do buy that. People who bought this, bought that. And the commercial world is listening in and watching and harvesting all that we buy, a lot of things that we do, so that we're being spied on constantly by artificially intelligent machinery that in the end, where is it going to lead to? What is it going to mean for the future of our species? People are concerned for their private uh, world, their privacy, corporate privacy, and uh, freedom indeed. And in this book, I try to explain what AI is, the two sorts of it, the sort that's actually working today. And then, of course, those futuristic speculations of what we are doing to humanity by incorporating various aspects of artificial intelligence and building them into our human lives and what the Bible has to say about it. So I do have a book coming out, but I also have a film coming out. I don't know whether you want to hear about that. Sure, tell us. Well, I've made a film with Kevin Sorbo. I wonder if you know who he is. I do, I do, mm-hmm. Kevin Sorbo, Hercules, Andromeda, and so on. And we've made a film uh, where half of it takes place in Oxford and half takes place in Israel, and it's called Against the Tide. You mentioned at the beginning that I've taken on some of the world's leading atheists. Well, Kevin and I engage in conversation throughout this film where he is asking me the big questions and it shows clips of the debates and all this kind of thing. And it's about the truth of Christianity. How, why do I believe in God as a scientist? And secondly, why do I believe in Jesus Christ? And so the location in Israel is ideal to explain the authority and reliability of, of the Christian story. So we hope that's going to come out in the fall. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. So we have things to look forward to. I'm wondering if in the minute we have left, you just simply want to say anything about your friend and colleague, Ravi Zacharias. Well, it's sad that, that Ravi is extremely unwell. I haven't had an update for a few days, but the hospital could not do anything more for him. And it was one of the top hospitals in Houston. And they sent him home to Atlanta to be with his family to be in their presence and to be comforted by them. Mm. And it's sad, but Ravi's leaving a great legacy because he has seen to it that a generation of people have been trained up to follow him. And some of them are extremely gifted and working for RZIM. So my prayers are with him and Margie and the rest of the family, and of course, the entire RZIM team, with whom I have the privilege of working um, <clears throat> and lecturing. And I look back over life, and I often shared the platform with Ravi himself, and was always impressed by his clarity of argument and his commitment to getting the Christian message out to helping thinkers believe and helping believers think, which is very much mm. my own motivation. Amen. Amen. Uh, Dr. Lennox, I hope you'll come back on another occasion and talk with us again. It is a real delight. The book that we're talking about today, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? Our friends at the Good Book Company have 
uh, have made it available. Want to encourage people to check that out as well as um, really, if you just Google John Lennox, um, one of the things that you're going to find are a number of videos on YouTube uh, where he has talked about everything from uh, from scientism to well, that's those are my my favorite conversations that uh, that I have watched to this point. Um, but Dr. Lennox, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a deep thinker um, and a brother in Christ. It's uh, it's a real privilege to talk with you today. It's my pleasure. Goodbye. Goodbye. We'll be right back. All right. So we um, we got all kinds of news from all over the world uh, to be talking about. David Aikman and I love to talk every Monday about what is happening in the world and bring the gospel to bear on those conversations. I know that we have protesters in Hong Kong um, that are not only being uh, rounded up, but now uh, tried and convicted. A 21-year-old man convicted of rioting recently got four years. And then um, after word of China harassing a journalist in Hong Kong, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, tweeted this out. American journalists in Hong Kong are members of a free press, not propaganda cadres. Any action to interfere with their work and impinge on Hong Kong's freedoms would impact our assessment of one country, two systems and the territory's status. He is obviously referring there to China's behavior. So uh, David Aikman and I are going to talk about Brexit. We're going to talk about Africa. We're going to talk about, uh, well, all kinds of things. All right. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Depression can buckle the knees of the best of us, and a pastor's wife is no exception. This is Max Locato. Years ago, my wife Deanland battled depression. Every day was great. Her life was loud and busy. Two kids in elementary school, a third in kindergarten, and a husband who didn't know how to get off the airplane and stay home. The days took their toll. But Deanland was never one to play games. On a given Sunday, when the depression was suffocating, she armed herself with honesty and went to church. If people ask me how I'm doing, I'm going to tell them. She answered each, how are you, with a candid, not well. I'm depressed. Will you pray for me? Casual chats became long conversations. Brief hellos became heartfelt moments of ministry. She found God's presence amidst God's people. He's waiting on you, my friend. And he will get you through this. This is Max Lakato. You will get through this. My name is Bond, James Bond. Joining me again today, Dr. David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine. Welcome back, sir. Thank you very much, Carmen. We just had Professor John Lennox on, uh, emeritus uh, mathematician from Oxford, and so it's it's just lilting voice hour on Mornings with Carmen. Uh, well, I'm glad you called it that. That's interesting. Well, there you go. All right, so let's talk about Brexit. It seems to be um, sneaking up on us. Uh, give us an update. Well, essentially... Uh, the UK has until the end of this year, according to the schedule of the EU, to come up with an arrangement of imports and export from the EU that would accord with their priorities of, of finance and commerce. And it's looking um, a bit difficult to 
really predict when this agreement will come through, but I think the end of the year might be a little too soon um, because the EU has got a whole lot on its plate, not to mention having to deal with the coronavirus. So that's yet another issue that they have to try and uh, try and finesse into this whole negotiation. So here in the United States, David, um, there's a uh, a global denomination called the United Methodist Church, but it's based here in the U.S. And they have been moving toward uh, dividing themselves up. And the reality of this pandemic and the reality of the fact that they now can't have the global meeting that they planned on having, it has lengthened the process. And I think by lengthening the process, um, it's it is giving them time for the emotionalism of it all to settle and for people to make more sober, wise judgments about things. I'm wondering if you think that the lengthening of this process, you know, at some level is helping in terms of the Brexit conversations. Yes, I think they hope that they can finesse this because they hope that the the British government will sort of fall into line with the maximum aspirations of the EU. I don't think that will happen, actually. I think at least under the administration of Boris Johnson, the UK government is going to be even more determined to get out of the EU trap, as they think it it, it should be called. So I think if the EU becomes really tough, that will make the British government even tougher in response. I don't think we're going to resolve this peacefully. So even in the midst of all of this, um, in terms of the coronavirus, uh, European countries have begun reopening their borders. Um, on Friday, we just heard a a prediction, I guess prediction is maybe the wrong word, uh, modeling from the World Health Organization that the coronavirus could infect a quarter of a billion people in Africa, putting intolerable pressure on that continent's already very, very fragile health system. Um, what what are your what are your thoughts in terms of of Africa as the coronavirus reaches there? And then we also, you know, are just looking at food shortages that are going to, you know, put another several hundred millions of people at risk of starvation. Well, I think the economic damage caused by the coronavirus is altogether more serious than the health damage because I think there's some very interesting voices, particularly in the United States and oddly enough in Ireland too, are people who say the whole approach of uh, isolation and social distancing is completely wrong because the stress that this puts on people to come up with a vaccine is, some people say, there's an Irish professor called Dr. Cahill, who is an expert on uh, microbiology and infectious diseases. And she says the immune system is best qualified to deal with this virus if you can get enough people who have at least been infected and have recovered and who are therefore immune 
and they will spread the the immune system uh, favorably responding throughout the population. So it's it's a completely counterintuitive narrative. The the narrative of everybody, especially the mainstream media and the medical establishment on both sides of the Atlantic, seems to stress social distancing and vaccines and so on. This point of view says no vaccines can sometimes do more harm than they than they solve. So it, this is a very interesting, different approach to how to deal with the virus. All right, I am talking with Dr. David Aikman. Uh, we are talking about all things happening around the world. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about an attack in Afghanistan that took place last week in a hospital maternity ward and how that is threatening to upend the Taliban truce there. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation now with Dr. David Aikman, editor of Godspeed magazine. Dr. Aikman, there was an attack, horrific attack, in Afghanistan last week in the maternity ward of a hospital. Um, Tell us why that and how that threatens to upend the very fragile truce there with the Taliban. Well, the truce was between the Taliban and the Afghan government, uh, led by President Afghani. And... This was supposed to be a ceasefire that would prevent the Taliban attacking the Afghan government and would prevent uh, the Afghan government from doing aggressive operations against Islamic State or actually against Taliban. But the attack seems to have been implemented not by the Taliban, as they claim, but by the Islamic State itself. And that's a very sinister element because the Islamic State is basically an umbrella organization that will provide sort of moral legitimacy, as it calls it, for any attack by an Islamic group against an existing government. And the Afghan government is, of course, um, prominently combating the Taliban regime. And so if they can throw another wrench into the works of that negotiation between uh, between the Taliban and the United States and the Afghan government, then the Islamic State regime is very happy to do that. So when when you sort of look at that situation, I mean, I just feel like Afghanistan has been a country at war or in war or subjected to other people's wars for a really, really long time. Um, What is your sense in terms of a positive path forward? Well, it's very difficult to predict with Afghanistan because you're left asking yourself, what do the people of Afghanistan want? If they're like people anywhere else in the world, want a reasonably stable political and social environment, they don't want endless campaigns, they don't want guerrilla warfare, they just want to get along with their lives. But this is being prevented 
by the both the Taliban, who is completely opposed to the Afghan regime, and by Islamic State, which wants to disrupt any peaceful discussions between rebel forces and government anywhere in the world. So it's very, very difficult for the Afghan government to find out the basis of a secure negotiation between them and rebel forces. All right, let's pivot. Um, let's pivot to South America for a moment. We are um, we are reading headlines out of Chile that are terribly disturbing in terms of a spike in cases there, particularly in Santiago. Um, the impact that that is having on people trying to fee- flee Venezuela, which is a wreck, and then we also have Brazil, which is desperately hard hit by COVID nineteen as well. Um, Let's uh, let's let's talk about what is happening in South America and just the stress on um, not only on those governments, but on healthcare systems that are clearly inadequate to the task. That's right. Well, Brazil has been facing a real challenge because it doesn't have enough hospital beds for people who are diagnosed with COVID-19. And it's. Its frontline workers, the ambulance drivers, and so forth, are really under tremendous pressure. And as you say, Chile has seen a real explosion of the virus in Santiago. And so, most of the Latin American, South American countries that were already under stress because of their lack of financing for medical services are under even more pressure now with uh, the coronavirus spreading in their population and the inability to treat patients who desperately need help uh, if they're succumbing to the virus. All right, and then David, I'd love to uh, I'd love to hear you reflect on Samaritan's Purse. Um, we we talked about them here on the show at the end of last week because the response to um, Samaritan's Purse offering aid and uh, and building a field hospital in Central Park here in the United States of America to serve uh, the city of New York. Um, once they, you know, once the, I guess, first wave uh, of, of COVID passed through New York City and the need for the hospital, um, you know, is, is no longer present, uh, the response of some what I'll describe as progressive elites in New York City was that, you know, it was time for Samaritan's Purse to, you know, get off the grass, get off our yard. Um, Talk about the closure of the Samaritan's Purse field hospital in Italy. Well, that was a very interesting situation because the Italian government was under tremendous pressure because of the outbreak of coronavirus in the north part of the country, especially in Lombardy. And the Samaritan's Purse had efforts to support the uh, Italian medical services in various ways. And that was put under pressure to close. So I think what you're dealing with here is a sort of progressive pressure on any private organization that is working charitably to reinforce medical services 
and other services, social services in different countries, purely on the basis of ideology that this is stuff that should be done by the state. Private organizations have no legitimate role in taking part. And that's the most unfortunate point of view, I think. Yeah, you and I are both reading uh, the same news here. This U.S. evangelical organization, as Samaritan's Purse has described, served uh, 281 patients in in its field hospital in Italy. Um, they sent in over 100 specialists to support the Italian fight against the coronavirus, including doctors, nurses, biomed technicians, uh, operations specialists. Log- uh, I don't even want to try to say that word. Logisticians? I don't know people who do logistics, um, and chaplains. And so I just think that when we, um, uh, although the Italians did say they appreciated, uh, that, that local citizens appreciated um, the the hospital um, and that there would be a sign of gratitude to uh, the Samaritani, um, the, the reality is that uh, that the Italian government has not necessarily responded um, with the kind of of gratitude that one might expect. And so I do think that there is, you have pointed it out, there there is a shift, not just here in the United States, but in Western Europe as well, in terms of a willingness to receive aid from Christians, from evangelical Christians. And it's kind of astonishing, uh, particularly when when it comes to healthcare. I mean, when you're desperate for help, you don't ask what kind of person is there to help you? Um, you just That's, receive the help that uh, that has been sent. Yeah, you don't have a faith questionnaire that you require organizations that are assisting you to fill out. But unfortunately, what's happening in Europe is what's happening in the United States, and maybe a little, a few degrees ahead of the United States. There is an overall suspicion amongst progressive intellectuals uh, towards charitable organizations, organizations especially that operate on faith principles rooted in Christian worldview. And so there's a huge opposition at the level of the sort of established intelligentsia against private organizations coming in and providing assistance, which not might show that Christians can actually help people. Heaven forbid that should be true. (laughs) Right. Amen. All right, David Aikman, you and I have to leave it right there. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Your insights uh, are of value to us, and we we really appreciate it. Have a blessed week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Thank you so much. God bless. Blessings. We'll be right back. All right, we uh, we worked in our garden yesterday, wondering if you worked in your garden as well. Um, and we noted that even where we live, it does seem as if the air is more clear, the sky more blue, uh, the air more fresh. I don't know if that's true or if it's psychological, but um, let me know what you're thinking about things today. Give me an email, carmen at myfaithradio.com. You can tweet, I'm at Carmen LaBerge. Uh, And go out there and breathe some of the fresh air today. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge from Faith Radio. 
If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.